Hi, folks. Just a quick note that the show you're going to hear today is a little different from our normal episodes. It was recorded live on Zoom as part of the Big Bold Jewish Climate Festival in late January. We go a little longer. We have a Q&A from our audience. But um, otherwise, it's the same evolved, groundbreaking Jewish conversations you know and love. So enjoy the conversation. From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and it is fantastic to be taking part in the big, bold Jewish Climate Festival and to be with folks from all around the world, maybe. Um, feel free to post in the chat or comments uh, wherever you live. I see somebody already did that. If this is your first or only session at the festival, thanks so much for choosing this one. I know it's a pretty serious topic. Um, what's more serious than death and burial? But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy ourselves a little bit while, while we're learning together. And before we really get going, I want to introduce the team, the, the band that's, uh, that's with me. Um, I've got Sam Wax, the show's editor, who makes sure everything looks and sounds great. Also with me today is Rachel Forth, who's quarterbacking this live event. And of course, there's Rabbi Jacob Staub, a PhD, who is our podcast executive producer. He directs the Evolve Project, and he's also an extraordinary intellectual who's nurtured several generations of rabbis. So how this is gonna work today is there's gonna be a, a normal podcast interview, which should take about 45 minutes, after which I will be handing things over to Rabbi Staub and he will be emceeing a Q&A session where we'll be taking questions from you, our, our audience. And so to, to keep things simple, we've turned off everyone's microphone except for our guests, but the chat is absolutely open. Throughout the show, you can post your questions in the chat and on, for comments on Facebook Live. Our team's gonna be monitoring those places and we'll be collecting questions for the Q&A. Okay, so now, the reason why we're here are two guests who've thought really deeply about an important topic. Um, first, I'm going to introduce Rabbi Seth Goldstein, who has been serving Temple Beth Hatifila in Olympia, Washington, since graduating from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 2003. He's an immediate past president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association and author of the Evolve essay, Human Composting a Reconstructionist Rabbi's View. There's a whole bunch more I could say about him, but I'll stop there and just say, Rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein, welcome to the show. It's so, so good to see you again and, and have you here. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. I to be here with everybody and looking forward to the conversation. And feel free to call me Seth throughout our, our talk. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll try to remember to do that. And, um, and, and next up is Rabbi Adina Lewittis who is the founding rabbi of Sha'ar, a Northern New Jersey, New York City-based values-driven community oriented around the call to societal, environmental, and spiritual sustainability. She recently served as the scholar in residence at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in New York City and is also a member of the, senior, of the rabbinical faculty of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Rabbi Lewittis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great, great to have you here as well. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. And uh, please feel free to call me Dini. Oh, <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> All right, let's let's dive right in. So I assume folks have, but say say people here today have never been to a Jewish funeral. Um, what are the basics of what they need to know that's involved in in, in Jewish death and burial and 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 what are the values driving that? I I know um, I know it's a big uh, a big topic, but I think it's important to start with um, with some grounding. So uh, so Dini, would would you um, would you mind taking the first uh, first crack at that one? Sure. You know, to keep it to keep it brief. Um, essentially, from the moment of death, the priority is to always have somebody um, watching over uh, the body of the deceased and um, sort of accompanying 
the body through all the various stages in preparation for and ultimately through burial. Um, you may have heard the term shomrim, those who observe or guard mm -hmm. the bodies. And in fact, the classical term for a funeral is livaya, which means to, to actually accompany. A body is, um, uh, is um, given the gift of a ritual called tahara, which is the ritual washing of the body. It's then dressed in very simple white shrouds. And um, in communities uh, that use a coffin, which is essentially everywhere outside of Israel, um, the coffin is specifically intended to be a simple plain pine box, um, both for its simplicity, its dignity, and the equality that we see permeating all of our burial traditions, but also because it is um, a material that degrades quickly and that is part of um, the returning of the body to the earth. Generally, um, Jewish people are buried in Jewish cemeteries. Taking together, all of these things promote the values of, as I said, simplicity, dignity, equality, and above all, um, kvod hamet, the honor that we wanna bring to the deceased. Now, these are thought of as universally accepted requirements of the halachic or Jewish legal tradition. And that is certainly the case with regards to kavod hamet, but how you achieve that, um, those assumptions are far more nuanced when it comes to the ritual requirements and um, far richer in the way they're discussed in our sources, as I think we're about to see. Wow, sounds like there's a lot to discuss and, and delve into there. Before before we go further, uh, Seth, any anything to add on, on sort of uh, the basics of, of um, Jewish death and burial? I think that's uh, that's a great summary. I think the values that are placed there, that there's, uh, I guess, to add that there, there are a number of values that go into uh, death uh, ritual. And I think that, that Dini touched on, I think that informed the ongoing conversation about that we're about to have and that, that are ongoing and how we might understand those values. And I think that it is, um, I mean, it is interesting to enter into this conversation because I think that that's the, uh, that's kind of the default. Like people understand burial to be the Jewish practice around around death, and to sort of think uh, broadly about that is um, is interesting. And so the, the of course elements of ritual and liturgy that come into it as well um, that are part of the practice and how to how to apply those and work those in, and what what are the functions of those rituals bring into those conversation. All right, I guess before. Before we go further, I think you, you both you both raised raised the the idea, which which um, I think would be surprising for some that that burial is not not required. So just can um, Dini, would you mind expanding on on that a little? I mean, I think a lot of us assume that that burial is is required in in, in Jewish law. Sure. You know, almost every ancient culture emphasized burial and the need for proper burial rites and in some cultures like ancient Mesopotamia, the next world was thought to be underground. So when you buried a body in the earth, it was also a way to facilitate that body getting to their next de destination. And it, we also have some hints of that in the Torah, right? The reference to Sheol, a neutral underground place where the dead are assumed to go. But the question is, is burial really required by Jewish law? On the one hand, we have verses which make it clear from dust you came to dust you shall return, but that doesn't necessarily clarify how you're supposed to um, get back into that form. One of the verses that is often called um, into the conversation actually is a verse about when there is someone who is guilty of a capital offense and they're put to death and they are impaled on a stake. There's a commandment not to let that body remain out and exposed that way and to instead bury that body quickly, which is a sort of double verb. And there are some people, some commentators who understood that the doubling of that verb is there to make clear the biblically mandated requirement for burial. But it could just as easily, according to other commentators, suggest that the emphasis is there to make sure that we don't leave a body out exposed in a way that is undignified. And in fact, you would be surprised to see that in the Talmud, in Masechet Sanhedrin, there is a fascinating conversation where rabbis are asking for not the proof even that burial is required by the Torah, but the remez, the hint. There's already an acknowledgement that there isn't a specific 
commandment to bury. And so um, after a lengthy conversation, the conclusion by some is, you know, since it's doubtful as to whether it's a biblical commandment, we should just be really safe and make sure everybody gets buried. There are others, though, who say that at most it might be a rabbinic decree. And so we rule leniently in case somebody wants other wishes. And in fact, part of the conversation actually in the Talmud refers to burial as just a matter of folkways or customs. And archeology span reveals no distinct Israelite burial practices during most of the biblical period. So we can't wow. actually, we can't conclude anything about specific religious beliefs around burial from what, from what we know. The bottom line is, Brian, that the, the legal tradition says relatively little about burial. Um, and its main concern is about avoiding defilement and about avoiding any kind of desecration um, to the dead. So um, wow, how's that pretty, for a beginning? That's pretty wild. <laughs> um, so I guess to fast forward about 2000 years from biblical or Talmudic times to 2021, not, not skipping over anything there. Um, this is, this is, we are, we are talking today as part of a big, bold Jewish climate festival. Um, my sense is the way the Jewish practices are pretty green already, but so, but what are the climate environmental challenges posed by, by Jewish burial, which is really the reason we're, we're, we're talking today. Um, Seth, do you, do you want to take the, the first, the first, um, uh, go at that one? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that there, I mean, there is a, a sort of notion that there are um, aspects that Jewish burial is, um, is a form of green burial in a way, sort of some of the uh, simplicity aspects that Didi mentioned earlier in terms of, um, uh, you know, preparation of the body in terms of a um, not very ostentatious or simple shrouds uh, of simple coffin uh, burial in the earth. Uh, there are times, I mean, I, I know that even where, where we, while we don't, while it very rarely happens, I know that where I am in, in Washington, you don't even need a coffin to be, to be buried. In fact, I've, I've officiated at a, uh, over folks who didn't want to be in a coffin, but just with a shroud. And so that already is a, um, uh, a step, a step in that direction. And there's also, um, but there are there's still sort of things that we run up against in terms of thinking about what what is considered to be green burial and um, and Jewish burial. I think we, we live in a world in which there are other while we have our Jewish customs, there are also uh, laws and you know state laws and things like that that we have to deal with in terms of certain things like like liners and regulations that uh, are sometimes more of a, a challenge. I know that that's something that we've been engaging with here. And, um, and I think one of the things that the, the challenge is that when it comes to a green burial versus the traditional Jewish burial that, um, that was described is that there's still the sense of taking up space, right? There's still the notion of space that we are, um, that when we have cemeteries, even Jewish cemeteries, there's still, uh, it's, 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 it's a designated use of land. And so there's concerns around around that as well, and to bring in the larger scope, and as we've seen over the years, you know, fast forwarding to 2021, when we have different uh, means of um, post death with cremation, namely, you know that people are um, that has entered into the conversation as well as far as alternatives to burial, and that it's a, something that Jewish communities have been talking about and Jews have been opting into. Um, I think with the notion that maybe that's a, a, a greener alternative when, when potentially it's not, right? So while it, it removes some of the space and some of the other sort of taking up considerations, uh, the energy that goes into cremation uh, is a factor that needs to be considered. And so, I mean, overall, we're seeing this, this notion of how we take these traditional notions of what constitutes Jewish death ritual and taking in the sensibilities of environmental justice, environmental awareness that we're, we're thinking of and how do we meet, how do we bring those values together and thinking that, well, tradition, you know, as, as, as Dini mentioned, has, there's, it's not maybe as, 
black and white as we might assume? And then also how do we engage with that intersection of values uh, in terms of that? And so to um, that there are short, there are between those two, there are even shortcomings. And that's why the conversation I think is expanding around that. I mean, as somebody who grew up in, in Queens, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that huge chunks of the borough were covered in cemeteries because starting from the midnight century, 19th century on, there was no more room in, in Manhattan. Um, Dini, is, 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 space, is space the issue here? I mean, I know it's a big issue in, in Israel. Is, is, is space the main thing you think about with environmentalism and, and, and burial or are there other, other issues at play as well? So it's interesting, uh, Seth said before that, uh, you know, when you look at the classical Jewish customs around burial, it seems like we were really sort of green right from the get-go. Hmm. And when it comes to space issues, I wanna add another interesting um, bit of information from what we know about ancient customs, which is that oftentimes families would bury their loved ones in caves or catacombs, which were then sealed for a certain period of time during which the bodies would decompose. And then they would return to those burial chambers and they would retrieve the bones and take the bones and bury them in a family ossuary, something that took up much less space and, some, and a practice that also allowed those decomposition graves to be reused for other dead bodies. So there was an inherent um, sort of awareness of using the land with efficiency of being able to, um, in a sense, recycle the land that was needed for burial. Um, and when we see uh, verses in the tradition of, you know, being gathered unto my ancestors, um, you know, in a way, that's what it might be reflecting, that the bones of ancestors were able to be buried in smaller spaces, thereby not stressing the land in the way that we are, uh, you know, accustomed to seeing it stressed now. And in fact, in Israel now, where there is, as you mentioned, a serious issue about land, they are currently building cemeteries with chambers like that to be able to um, reinstitute that practice. And major rabbinic authorities have acknowledged that there is no halachic, no Jewish legal impediment to that. Um, so that is, is one way that, um, that even traditional Jewish burial is able to be mindful of land use. And I'll just add also that the requirements around how much space exists between graves is also sometimes um, misunderstood to be a matter of law when in fact it's a matter of custom. And it was really um, those spaces were measured based on the durability of the earth so that graves wouldn't collapse onto themselves. But in fact, um, according to the tradition, you can space graves much more closely together than we realize. And in terms of bringing the dead back into our cities, Brian, you mentioned how Queens was taken over, right? Whereas we used to keep our dead close to us and cities became overwhelmed with burial uh, needs for burial land. And that's when we ended up putting our, our dead way outside the city. I, I actually sit on a committee at Columbia University where I met an architect who was actually redesigning urban cemeteries using this process that I just described to you about chambers that can be reused after a body is placed in there to decompose and even capturing the energy that is released from the decomposition in order to be able to power city lights, for example. All of this enabling us to bring our loved ones closer to us and be much more mindful of land and energy efficiency. It's, a, it's interesting to think about, oh, just so like, that reminds me, I mean, how you know, it goes in one tradition, but then if we look at the, the stories in like in Bereshit and Genesis that talk all about the caves and, the, and Joseph wanting his bones brought up, you know, the, the referral to the ossuaries and, and that we sort of moved away from that into something, to something else. Um, and to hear those stories and, and reminded that, no, it was not necessarily like that. So natural organic reduction, human composting, it's, it's taken me a little while to get here. You might, you might even say I buried, buried the lead a bit, but um, I mentioned it, I mentioned it to anybody that, that I said I was doing this and they kind of shuddered like, whoa, like it just, it just brought a, a chill up their spine. Like it just didn't, it didn't, even though natural isn't the title, it didn't sound natural to them. So what, what, it's no longer theory. This is practice as according to the Seattle times um, 
as of December, the, um, this this company Recompost is actually doing it. So, what what is you know? Can you take us through what is what is human composting? What are we talking about? What does it look like? Um, I mean, I mean, Seth, since you're in in Washington State, where this is um, this is now a legal practice, do you wanna do you wanna to start by answering that? Sure, sure. Um, and it's funny, it's so new. I was mentioning human composting to someone and they thought I was talking about humanure, sort of like uh, composting human waste um, <laughs> to use, which is another, you know, another practice. But um, and human composting is, is kind of a colloquial term to describe what it's all about. But natural organic reduction is, is um, sort of a more technical term. But it is, it is natural. I mean, I think that when we think about it, um, bodies decompose, right? We know that. And I think that we, um, getting to the simplicity of what we understand to be a traditional burial, you know, there's a, a sense of connecting to the earth and um, uh, which, and then the body returns to the dust as, as the texts say, and that bodies will decompose and that there's an understanding. And um, what natural organic reduction, I think, sees that the, um, that we are, of the earth, right? Uh, Adam, the first human, and Adama on the earth, and that it sort of is a very intentional way of making that connection, even though it's not necessarily coming out of Jewish community, um, that there's a um, uh, uh, sort of that, that sort of connection. And, and essentially what it, what it is, and it's not, and, you know, I've learned more about it since, um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I came into this not necessarily as a, as a, uh, uh, striver for this, but as a rabbi now serving in Washington state where it's now legal, as you mentioned, it's, um, it's a question. It becomes a question and the choices that people are going to, to make. And so I've been uh, very interested to learn about it. And as you mentioned, it's not just legal, but it's now happening as, as one facility has come on and another is coming on very soon. So um, essentially uh when you die, uh, if you'd wanted to enter into natural organic reduction, you are um, placed, your body is placed in a vessel uh, that uh, it's about, some, you know, be like eight feet long or, and four foot tall, something like that, and um, placed naked. I mean, I know we talk about traditional burial involving shrouds, but you would be, um, you would be naked and your body would also with your body would be put organic material. So like wood chips or alfalfa, wood chips, alfalfa, um, straw. And that over a course of 30 days, your body will reduce, will decompose with that organic material into another organic material, uh, compost. And this, in some ways it's, you know, to be, it's kind of like what you would do with compost in your garden, right? You have a mix of, um, uh, you have a mix of materials, you know, browns and greens, if you're a, a composter of different types of materials to get to a certain uh, chemical uh, mix and a certain uh, heat, which allows for the decomposition. And then your body is, is reduced and it takes, uh, it takes about 30 days for the process to complete. After the 30 days, uh, the compost is then um, has to cure for another couple of weeks. Uh, in a facility. And then following that, then you have compost that you could use to, uh, and essentially uh, how it works now is that you can either, a family could claim the compost for themselves, uh, or they can, um, or the compost could be used on sort of public lands or conservation lands. And um, you would use it as if you would uh, any type of growing material, organic material, um, and it um, it produces quite a bit. I mean, that's something to learn. That's something I learned a bit later on. I think we're used to, if we think about alternatives to burial and we think about cremation and we think about little urns with, with ashes, natural organic reduction actually produces quite a bit of compost. It produces about a yard of compost, which is a lot. And if you're not versed in that term, if you can imagine like a three foot by three foot by three foot box, which is again, a lot, or another way to think about it is um, if you're thinking about a 10 foot by 10 foot garden plot, about three inches deep, which is kind of a standard for composting uh, a garden. And, um, and that, and that's the, um, 
And that's where it comes out of people who are interested in exploring alternatives to death uh, ritual and alternatives to burial, especially trying to capture an environmental uh, awareness. I mean, it was done very consciously. Um, it actually comes out of practices that that's, uh, farmers would use with livestock who had died. They would end up composting their livestock. And so studies were done mostly out of Washington State University uh, about what it would look like for humans and there were, um, you know, papers written and, and, and studies, and, and that's where we are, and eventually through the legislation um, to that. So that's the basic process of, of natural organic reduction. And my sense is this is happening in, in like a warehouse-like structure, and families at the end sort of have the option of either accepting or keeping the soil or, or donating it. Is that, does right. that sound right? Right, right, Yeah. There are facilities that are open around the Seattle area and, you know, one currently open, another opening soon. And, and um, um, yeah, so that's, and that's basically it. Thanks. Thanks so much. That, that explained that. I think that explains a lot. Um, Deanie, what's, I guess, just, just no pressure on this. What's, what's the ruling? I mean, you, 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 you gave a sense that there's, there's actually been a wide, wide range of Jewish practice over the millennia. Is this, is this completely outside anything we would we would recognize as as consistent with Jewish values? Um, like, how do you, you know, what, what what do you think when you when you when you look into consider um, human composting? So it's actually it's actually fascinating, Brian. First of all, I also just want to clarify. Um, please. When in sharing the background that I did, it's not that there is such a wide variety of practice over the millennia within Jewish communities. But what there is, is a much greater amount of fluidity or flexibility in the understanding of the tradition around whether burial as we do it is actually a Jewish legal requirement or whether it kind of fell into a universal practice from custom, which opens the foundation for re-examining it if we are compelled or inspired to re-examine it as we're doing right here. When it comes to human composting in Jewish tradition, you know, we have many sources that emphasize the quick reintegration of the body with the earth and practices that developed in order to support that. So for example, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi ordered that holes be drilled into the base of his coffin so that his body is made sure to touch the soil and to um, begin that process of decomposition and reintegration. We read about some traditions where a board was removed from the bottom of the casket or uh, additional holes made in it in order to do exactly the same, to quicken this process of decomposition. And we know in some communities, particularly in Israel, a casket is omitted altogether. In fact, actually coffins were not thought to be used in ancient Israel. People, the thinking is that coffins were actually um, an Egyptian custom that was, wow. that was adopted by Jewish communities. Um, even the custom of placing pieces of broken pottery over the eyes and mouth inside a coffin in a traditional Jewish burial is related to this because one explanation for it is that it also is a way of enabling the body to have direct contact with earthenware material so as to begin and accelerate the process of decomposition. Now, it's interesting. There's a case that we read about in the 13th century um, about somebody requesting to be buried in a different location, but the day that they died, the funeral home or their family was not able to transport them. And so they were put into a temporary uh, grave and there was um, material placed on their body like lime that was thought to accelerate the decomposition so that the body wouldn't lose dignity by beginning to smell or publicly have its flesh exposed. So that the waiting period for them to be able to transport the remains actually um, was shortened. And so in, for our discussion, the rabbi ruling over that case ruled that it's permissible to place these substances on the body so that it accelerates the decomposition provided that it's done so in order to minimize the degradation of the corpse. Um, and other rabbinic authorities who read about this case comment that in reality, anything that we can do to honor the dead or to benefit them is not ever to be considered bizayon or any kind of degradation. So in theory, using products that can 
um, enhance or um, uh, accelerate the natural process of decomposition and reintegration um, has some foundation in the tradition. Um, you know, as an aside, people talk about the sweet loamy smell of the, um, uh, the, the human composting um, environment by placing all these organic materials over the body. Um, just as an interesting reference to um, possible Jewish burial practices back in the first century, um, we read in the New Testament that Jesus's disciples took his body and brought a whole lot of myrrh and aloe and wound it in linen cloth with the spices, um, as is the manner of Jews to bury, according to John. So this idea of bringing um, those materials and making them part of the body as it's, um, as it's laid to rest is, again, we have foundations for talking about this. The question about using the composted remains in land regeneration projects, as opposed to formal burying in a cemetery, you know, raises the question of whether designated burial grounds are required in the tradition. And yes, Jewish cemeteries are considered sacred places. We don't allow for levity or other non-burial and mourning related activities to take place there. Um, but keep in mind that things like gravestones are not required by Jewish law. They're not universal. In the earliest of days, there were no markers that were necessary to be used. Um, sometimes just the grave site was marked with a, a plain pillar to designate that there were dead bodies here so that those who were concerned about impurity would know not to come to that area. Um, sometimes stones were placed on um, graves in order to protect those graves from animals. So again, this is a custom that developed and it developed as we know quite elaborately in terms of cemeteries and Jewish cemeteries. The whole concept of a Jewish cemetery is not as we would say from Sinai, but is actually a relatively recent historical development. So again, there is the foundation to talk about these things that is consistent with our understanding of how our own traditions evolved. Um Maybe I'll, I'll, Dini, I'll, I'll ask you, and but I, I'd like I'd like each of you to to weigh in. Um, I think you hinted at it, but my sense is that I mean, when we think of composting, we think of of gathering materials that will benefit the land, regenerate the land, help with growth. And my understanding is that that one of the values surrounding Jewish burial is that we we don't in any way derive benefit from you know, from, from human re remains, essentially. So how do we, how do we deal with that in, in thinking about human composting and if it makes sense from a, from a Jewish perspective? You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about where there's a conversation about um, deriving benefit from human remains, certainly in the way our burial customs have, um, have developed, there is no, there is no possibility of, of doing so because we place the body into the earth and we leave it to its own destiny. Um, but, you know, I, I'd like to reframe your suggestion um, that we are deriving benefit from the possibility of using the reintegration of human bodies into the earth as a way of healing the earth and think of it not as a sort of selfish um, acquisition of benefit, but to really understand the time and the place in which we're having this conversation and to recognize that we are at a moment where the earth, the environment, those who are deceased, um, as well as the people who are affected most directly by the choices that we make this is a moment where we need really courageous halachic thinking and halachic imagination to understand how to best fulfill an equally obligatory requirement of our tradition, which is to be the most loving and responsible stewards of the earth. And, you know, far from framing it as human benefit, I wanna to argue too that our tradition 
not unlike most religions, places humanity at the center of the story and places humanity at the center of history. What our generation is being reminded of and quite um, threateningly reminded of is that we are not the main characters in this story and that we must live and yes, we must die in a way that honors and sustains the many different elements and manifestations of life in our created world. Our faith system has to reflect that understanding and our rituals and our practices have to catch up too. We've done that. We've had these conversations around Kashrut, around Shabbat and the uses of electricity. We've had these conversations around prayer and many other aspects of our tradition. I think in this realm, in terms of burial, um, we should continue to proudly embrace our tradition's evolutionary dynamism, always progressing towards the most enlightened and ethical expressions of gratitude for life, of humility in the face of life's fragility, and of its sacredness in all of its forms. Seth, how did I, I know you've your your uh, your essay on the evolved site is very much from a values-based perspective, and you and you balance values. How do you how do you look at this from a values perspective? I, I think that's. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, and that was uh, a piece I wrote was kind of a, a, a think piece in terms of trying to come to terms with what I might think about it, having thought about it. I mean, I, I love what, what Dini just talked about in terms of the uh, moving the humans out of the center. I think that's definitely a um, something that we need to grapple with. I mean, one of my favorite texts from the, the Talmud is the Hillel Shammai argument about over whether humans should have been created in the first place. And they decide that now humans shouldn't have been created in the first place, but we're here. So we have to really do what we can. And I think that it, it allows us to think about what, right. What is, what is our role in terms of the larger whole? And I, I know that um, that notion of deriving benefit was something in terms of some of my research and reading, and there hasn't been that much about this from a Jewish perspective, um, that came up, but in terms of reframing what that what that even means, what do these values mean? I mean, I think that and how they've gotten uh, played out or how they've been uh, uh, embodied right, isn't. We can think about it in, in broad in broad strokes. And I think there's a lot that goes into. I mean, I think in general, you know, going back to this notion of. Jewish law and halakha and burial practices. And it's just been interesting to me in terms of working as a, as a rabbi learning uh, over the, like how much of this is built up into in custom as opposed to law. And even from little practices to larger assumptions are, are really customs. And to think about how those customs have developed uh, to meet certain needs, right? And maybe not just affinity to tradition, but psychological needs, sociological needs, uh, and how practices are, are bolstered by them. But to think then that those needs could be met in different ways, or those needs are changing uh, as well. And um, then thinking about that, I think that we do have a, you know, an environmental consciousness that we didn't have um, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and that we are being forced to confront things differently. And um, and to think about what is it that, uh, and just the sociological makeup of the, the Jewish community in terms of what people expect and what people's needs are. Um, that, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the, the Jewish communities of, uh, or the cemeteries of Queens, which I know as well. Um, and just, I've always been fascinated visiting those because they, they sort of look like, they reflect how people lived at that one point, right? It's like, it's a, the graves on top of graves. And whenever I go there, I just imagine like tenements on the Lower East Side and people died as people lived. And I think that that's still true, but in different ways. And people are much more mobile. People see themselves as part, much more part of a larger whole. Uh, people are rooted, not just to each other, but to the earth. And um, having to be able to express those, um, those values. You know, we talk about we talk about baltashchit when it comes to uh, environment, uh, a deep Jewish value that comes into environmental values. And so how could we apply that as, as Dini was saying to all aspects of Jewish life? And I mean, death, as you opened up this conversation, there can be a lot 
that goes with that. And I think that um, uh, in terms of what people bring to the conversation, but there's no reason why this shouldn't be that aspect of Jewish practice should not be part of that conversation as well. The sort of challenge norms of, uh, of what we might have traditionally given uh, or how we understood certain practices to be, to expand them to all aspects of Jewish life. Wow, thanks, thanks so much for that. Um, Brian, I know we, we need to wrap. Is there, is there time to just raise one other issue that absolutely. I just want to flag? Um, I mean, one thing that we didn't talk about um, is actually the, the question of whether cremation is actually prohibited according to Jewish law. And there's a little bit of myth busting to do there too. Um, <laughs> although um, we can get into it maybe another time or if anybody wants to talk about it, can reach me directly. Um, I do echo what Seth said in terms of it actually not having um, the sort of ecological benefits that people assume them to have. But even when it comes to cremation, human composting, what I think these conversations raise is yet another question that is very, very unique to this Jewish moment. Living as we do at a time of the um, the sort of dismantling of the hierarchies of religious authority, living at a time where people are taking much more ownership of their Jewish lives and their spiritual lives and making decisions motivated by a desire for personal authenticity, coherence in terms of their values. The role of the rabbi has changed so much as well. So that we have to ask ourselves, is our mandate really to be, um, you know, the gatekeepers deciding what is okay, what is not okay, really creating rigid limitations and boundaries around, you know, this is what Jewish pro uh, practice looks like and nothing else? Or really is our role today to educate, to nurture, to guide, and to lead people to the deepest understanding of their many varying ideals and convictions as Jews and as human beings. Now, you know, I think I've, I, I hope I've made it clear that I am actually very committed to the greening of our tradition and to living much more mindfully and, um, and respectfully with the created world around us. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this also raises that fundamental question of the nature of the relationship that we as religious leaders have to the growing consciousness of our communities and the ways in which we want to nurture that growing consciousness Jewishly. Um, I think, I, you know, I think that's a really important question. As I, I like to say all the time, you know, my, my mission uh, uh, as a rabbi, I, you know, my success will not be evaluated based on how many people I've convinced to lead my Jewish life but I really believe that my success as a rabbi and my, my mission will be evaluated by how many people I've been able to lead to them living the most authentic expression of their Jewish lives and values and ethics. And I think the playing field is sufficiently diverse that our roles can be you know, beyond those of saying, this is Jewish and this isn't Jewish, but more nurturing um, uh, in the way that we've been talking today. Um, so. Yeah, I, I want to affirm that. I mean, I think it's a, it's a powerful point that applies to this and, and larger things. You know, it's how I, um, you know, as I said, I came into this, I was really invited into this conversation by members of my congregation um, because it's a, it's a point of where uh, it's a reality, right? Where I am. And so the question is not, is this okay? Like, Rabbi, is this okay? But it's like, Rabbi, how, how do I make this Jewish? Like, I want to do this for these series of reasons that I have a hard time arguing with. And because they're not, they're all these values that we've, we've spoken about. And so the question is, I, I'm committed to this for these, for these values. So how can I incorporate Jewish tradition into that? How can I make this how could I apply those assumptions we've had about Jewish burial, ritual, and liturgy and whatnot to this new way of engaging and to really enrich it? And that's where the spiritual growth comes from. And so it's, it's, be, it's leading and being led, you know, as rabbis and then giving the opportunity to lead in new ways. And that's, um, yeah, I mean, my, I mean, my go to rabbi phrases, I just want to say yes all the time, right? I want to be, <laughs> so I want to, because I want people to live deep and rich Jewish lives. And the fact that people are asking about how do I make NOR Jewish, right? 
That's a powerful question. I think that says a lot about where people are, not just the fact of their agency when it comes to their own spiritual path, but also the fact that there's an embrace of Judaism there and that it falls upon, upon us to sort of meet people where they are and engaging with that question. Wow. So that's, I think, as good a place to any to transition. Um, you wouldn't be surprised to know I prepared a list of question that goes on, questions that go on much longer. But as I'm looking at our, our chat, there's been some fabulous and um, really interesting questions that have been popping up throughout. Um, I think I, I need to, I need to like tap into, um, tap into some of these minds um, for, ev- for every episode I do, because there's some great questions. So um, we want to open this up and, and hear from our audience. And just give me one second, because before we get to our q and uh, one quick uh, public service announcement, or just want to ask, were you informed? Did this make you think about this issue in a way you hadn't before? Do you want others to experience this kind of dialogue? So I'm just going to ask, consider making a gift to support this podcast and evolve through our website, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And, you know, for your convenience, if folks want to go ahead and open up their wallets right now, be, you know, be my guest, we'll, we'll put up a link on, on, on the chat and, and you can find a donation link on, on our website. So, um, so that, that, that heartfelt ask being said, it is, it is now my, my pleasure and honor to hand the proceedings over to my friend and executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub, who's going to moderate the Q&A and really um, um, give give life to, to some of these questions. I'm, I'm sure there won't be time for all of them. So, Rabbi Staub, um, hello, good afternoon. the the mic is uh, The mic is yours. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Dini and Seth, uh, for a really interesting and important conversation. You know, the subtitle of the Evolve Project is groundbreaking Jewish conversations. And you know, this is a conversation that doesn't happen, hasn't happened a lot in, in the Jewish world. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. It's part of our mission. Um, so I will begin with uh, a couple of questions from Dina Newman um, and they're related. One is how do you think this practice influences the grieving process? For example, what are we going to do before Rosh Hashanah in Elul in terms of visiting the graves of our, our loved ones? Um, how does this alter the rhythm and how can you imagine um, it working? Um, now, if we decide that this is a good thing to do, it, it is likely to uh, affect uh, our relationship to, uh, to grief and memory. Um. Yeah, it's a wonderful question, an important question. We have to consider the implications of, uh, of, of these new possibilities from so many different angles, not the least of which is from the perspective of those who are left behind. Um, so I appreciate that very much. And it should be obvious that certainly none of the answers I have or comments I have are you know, fully formed yet because this is so new and we need time to really um, live with them and let them evolve. But I would say this just as a beginner, um, you know, the question of what becomes of the composted remains is really interesting because there, there is no clear mandate what to do. Um, and it, it is possible that some, if not all of those remains can be used for some kind of, you know, project, whether it's a grove of trees or some kind of, you know, beautiful enhancement um, on family property that can be visited, that can be a focus of attention and proximity and presence. You know, uh, something else, people think of using cremate cremation remains in this way and, you know, place them, uh, for example, in gardens and think the trees will go grow. One of the problems of cremation is that the remains actually contain um, elements that are very detrimental to the soil. 
And if you think you're going to have a beautiful tree grow from cremated remains, I think you're going to be very disappointed. Whereas these remains may actually be more nurturing of uh, something that can be a focused object of remembrance and of visitation. Um, you know, in terms of the, the um, choreography and the, the sequencing of our rituals, you know, I, I could imagine Shiva taking place uh, during the period of the composting and some kind of other new ritual that's created when the remains are ready to be um, placed in whatever, you know, form the family chooses. I want to add just one more element of mourning and grief um, and, and then turn it over to you, Seth, if you have more. But, you know, one of the one of the deep pieces of wisdom from our tradition that we haven't mentioned yet is a statement from the Talmud, which says, mitzvah l'kayim divrei hamet, that it is a mitzvah, it is a sacred obligation to fulfill the wishes of the deceased. And though it might not be a choice that, uh, you know, someone in particular might make if their loved one, for the reasons that we've been describing, makes this choice, um, it may be upon us to honor it and to figure out how to honor it in a way that both brings ongoing dignity to the mate and the nichum of elim, the comfort to the mourners, that is part of our tradition as well. Um, so I, I think that's important yeah. to remember. Yeah, I think that's that's wonderful. I, th I think that, you know, to those questions, it's, I mean, Judaism has been, if not, you know, throughout our history has been creative and met the moment. And I think that that's, you know, it's an opportunity to to think about creativity around ritual and liturgy as we have uh, over the over the years. And I think that there are elements that kind of line up and, and are connected. And I think that um, uh, different ways of, of taking the traditional rituals of of liturgies around Levaya, funeral or or Shiva, and they might meet differently. I mean, in some ways we have with folks who have chosen to be cremated, there's already sort of an adaption, uh, adaptation that goes in there. Um, but this could also provide new opportunities to to honor those values of like environmental justice and, and, and sort of connecting it to the earth. I, I mean, I think the question about place is a really interesting one. And I think that it, I mean, I think that when I think personally, you know, not just in my rabbinic role about you know, my, what I want for myself, you know, and that sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of drawn to that notion of place and of, you know, cemetery and stone. And because I think that there's a, there's something meaningful there, but I also think our notions of place have, have changed. And I think as Dini mentioned, there are new ways to think about that, whether it be groves or trees or, or plants, you know, we think about the custom of planting trees when a child is born, you know, it could be somewhat similar in that as well, in which case there is place as well. And, you know, I think about my family and in, in which people are scattered all over. It's, we, it's hard to visit family graves around the high holidays because people have, are so mobile and, 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 and choose uh, to be in different places and move throughout the course of their lives. And it's not this place, the sense that we all li uh, born, live and die in the same place. So our, our notions of that, I think, I think can change, but I think I, there's there's a lot of creativity and a lot of richness in the tradition as well to bring to bring to bear to how we might label these things, you know, Jewish terms or you know liturgies for various moments, both keeping in line with traditional Jewish liturgies, but also maybe applying new ones for this specific for this specific approach. Thank you. Uh, a couple of. Uh informational questions. I want to just quick answers. Um, uh, Deborah Brown asked, why not in a shroud? Why would that impede decomposition? Can we imagine a shroud that is decomposable? Any thoughts on that? That's an interesting question. I think that because it, I think for that, um, in general, that in that process, anything that would impede um, uh, it would see something that would impede or slow down the process, whether that's a conversation for later on. I mean, that's kind of an interesting question. I don't know enough about that. And that would be having to work in, con in consultation with folks who are actually setting up uh, NOR. But I know that there is, um, you know, anything that is 
artificial uh, will is ultimately removed, you know, through people who have like, um, you know, pacemakers or things like that. Um, but, um, but yeah, but as far as I know where, where it stands now that there's a um, uh, no, right, no shrouds and whatnot. I mean, whether, again, sort of getting back to that, I know thinking about Tahara and shrouding is part of that, whether, you know, there's opportunity to, perform tahara and a shrouding and then the de-shrouding is is a part of another aspect of ritual or done in private you know i think that there could be means to to work it in but as far as it goes now there's no uh, a body is placed um another point of information is about uh bones do they decompose in this process everything decomposes okay. in this process and uh, I mean, what's interesting too that they come up according to the, you know, the studies that have been done, the um, the material that is produced is not biologically or microbiologically connected to human material. It's 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 pure combo. It's it's a it's a completely different uh, material uh, that comes out of the process. And so yes, everything that is organic in a body will um, will decompose. Jacob, if I, could, if I could just jump in for a second, um, you know, I don't want us to think about this conversation in a zero sum way. It's not either we opt for natural organic composting or we do a Jewish ritual, right? There, there, it's new, so we don't have all the specifics, but it, it, it will end up being a synergistically um, enriched, uh, you know, option. So tachrichin, the shrouds, um, we know from the tradition that sometimes there were different kinds of shrouds used for different burials. And it's entirely conceivable that someone will create a biodegradable shroud so that we can maintain some of the beautiful compassionate traditions of Kavod Hamet, the uh, honor due to the deceased, even if we choose these some of these alternative um, uh, processes as well. Thank you. Um, Judith, um, and several others fast the concerns about health and safety. Um, I assume this is these are being these concerns are being addressed um, by the by the state, by the people who are doing this. but do you, either of you know anything about concerns about infection, uh, in particular disease transmission? Um, sorry, go ahead. Sir. Oh go on Didi. I was just going to say in, in, you know, my limited knowledge of, of this, there are clear restrictions. Um, if people have died as a result of certain uh, illnesses and their bodies contain certain chemicals from uh, different medical therapies, there are people who are not candidates for this precisely for those reasons. Yeah. Okay. But, but anything else, common stuff is, is broken down. And again, the, what's result is, is microbiologically different than what, what came and through that's through some of the studies that have been done. There's a question from Michael Greenberg to you, Seth, about your drush. You know what he's talking about? Oh, because I mentioned, uh, I think, in my uh, in the little piece I wrote, it sort of referred, I referred to that second, um, uh, second paragraph of the Amidah that talks about God is. Uh, and just that, um, you know, this this sort of, I mean, if you'll permit me, Jacob, uh, as a reconstructionist to use Mechayim no, 18, but the, okay, then I can't answer the question. But uh, <laughs> if we talk about the, uh, uh, but I think in this way, there's another reading of it, right? To sort of think about, well, what is, what is Mechayim HaMetim? What is giving life to the dead? What is resurrection of the dead? Um and I think the traditional liturgy gives us this beautiful little hint when it says matzmiach, Yeshua, like to sprout forth redemption, redemption, right? And it's the it's the same root that has to do with with plants and planting growth. And so it's a um, well, perhaps in the liturgy it was meant metaphorically, or maybe not. You know, we don't know for you know from the uh, uh, the different ways. But here's a um, this sort of beautiful hint of sort of thinking. Well, how do we understand? Mechayim 18, the resurrection of the dead or life after death. Well, this is in a way, you know, thinking about, as, as Dini mentioned, just our opening our consciousness to sort of beyond humans into our, our role within the larger um, biosphere, right? This is a way of giving life after death by 
using our, when, uh, you know, as I often say at funerals, like when individual lives end, but life itself continues, that this is a way of very consciously sort of living into that ethos of giving life after death. Um, and not just for ourselves, but for, but for those, but for everybody. Seth, not to get into a drashathon here, but Mechayeha Meitim also, maybe this is a moment that calls for some creative um, parshanut and uh, some creative textual analysis where it's not the, the dead that are revived, right? But it's the Meitim that are right. Mechayeh. It's the dead that are actually bringing life. Whoa. Yeah. Beautiful. Interesting. Yeah. And and it's giving way and maybe I'll add we can, we can keep going back with it. Yeah, then, then it just reminded like the notion of Kavod Hamet that we're talking about, right? These are the main team, like we are giving them life by honoring their desires as well. So a lot, a lot of richness. Yeah, yes. Um so just one one last we have only a couple of minutes. Last question for only a couple of minutes. Um so I imagine there's a lot of resistance. Um, and um, Handy, do you have quick answers on, on what you do with um, someone who's really upset that their loved one is going to decompose? Um, have you run into this? <laughs> well, I, I think in some way it's the, you know, this is the, having this conversation is one of the first, that, right? It is very new. Um, right now it's only reality in, in one state. So in fact, to begin to have this conversation now, as it will probably spread, I think is, um, uh, is important because I think that, you know, that's the meta conversation. I think in the, the smaller conversation, it's always a, a, a healthy practice to be able to talk to your loved ones about what your desires are uh, before death to be able to explain and to share and to why. And so it doesn't get to be a situation that somebody dies and everyone's arguing over why they wanted this or whatnot and, and doing it, be able to have that conversation uh, with family. Uh, yeah. And it is new. I mean, it is new and it is, there is a, you know, factor to it um, uh, that I think in some ways with anything new that comes up, but also, you know, a lot of issues around around death and dying that adds to the difficulty of the conversation. But I think that the, um, for the ability to, for families to have those conversations as people make these choices uh, as often as needed and prior to death, I think is, in, is important. And um, so for us as a Jewish community to have these conversations, to sort of think, to be able to think broadly and creatively and sort of normalize what might be a, a new challenge will be important as a Jewish community to do. Jacob, I think the question actually has two parts to it. One is the technical part, and there's no question that this is something that puts much more uh, dramatically in our faces what happens no matter what path we choose, right? The decomposition of our bodies and the reintegration of our bodies into the earth. That is a, you know, an unavoidable um you know, part of, of death when there is, you know, uh, burial, even in the most traditional of ways. So in some ways, that's a very jarring thing. In some ways, as Seth described, it's actually an opportunity for a very, um, you know, important and healing conversation about the realities of life and mortality. Um, it's given us, as we've already said today, the opportunity to talk about our relationship to the planet and our place within it and our responsibilities to continue to give to it even beyond um, our lifetimes. But the second part of the question raises something that, you know, can be applied to just about any conversation, which is, you know, when my loved ones choose to do something that's not what I wish they had chosen to do. That's kind of a larger pastoral question and, um, and a family question. And I, you know, I have great confidence in my colleagues um, across the Jewish world to help families um, come to terms with some of these difficult moments um, in whatever you know, issue they may make themselves manifest. Again, I share what the tradition says, it's, we have an obligation to honor people's wishes. 
So thank you. Thank you both very, very, very much. And thanks to the audience, uh, to the, the participants here. Great, great questions. And I wish we had more time, but we don't. Um, so I'm going to turn this um, back over to Brian, our host, to wrap it up. Thanks, Jacob, for really handling that so skillfully. And, and thank you, everybody out there for really bringing so much to the conversation and especially to um, Seth and Dini. That, that was really a, an insightful, um, generative discussion. I, I'm really happy to be part of it. Um, so thank you. Um, so folks out there, can't wait to hear this show again. Um, liked it that much. In a few weeks, we'll be releasing today's episode um, as at, we'll be releasing today's conversation as an episode on our feed. So be sure to subscribe and check it out and, and uh, keep listening. Um, I saw a lot of positive comments in, in the chat, but you know, I'll ask, what, what did you think of today's episode? I, I want to hear from you because Evolve is about meaningful conversations that, that include you. Send me your questions, your comments, your feedback, whatever you got. You can reach me at B. Schwartzman. This is my real email address, B. Schwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. And uh, now comes the part where I, I, I have to follow the script or else I'll, I'll get in trouble from, uh, from my team. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks so much. Thank you.